Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. We are back from summer break for season five of the podcast. And in our first episode of the season, we discuss a brand new paper that's generating a ton of discussion about how age and biological sex impact our metabolic rate. After discussing these new findings, we also provide some practical strategies for estimating total daily energy expenditure, either for yourself or for your clients. This episode also features a research update on blood flow restricted training, in addition to a brief discussion about turkesterone supplementation and an exciting announcement about our first ever live Q&A episode of the podcast. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and today, to kick off season number five, I've got a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Like I said, we are now in season five of the podcast. Uh, We recently took a little bit of time off for summer break, a little bit of relaxation, fun in the sun. Uh, We went through a plague of biblical proportions. Uh, I was attacked by fire ants, to which apparently I'm quite allergic uh, Greg, you had hand, foot, and mouth disease. Uh, I, I didn't authorize you to share that. Well, as a doctor, and I'm saying my doctor, that is a HIPAA violation. And, yeah, and you'll be hearing from my legal representation. Uh, looking forward to that. I'm sure that'll be not a problem at all. Very easy to handle. Um, so yeah, we and now we've got uh, just so listeners know. To go with the uh, plague of biblical proportions, we currently have a rain of biblical proportions. So you might hear a little bit of rain and thunder in the background, but I'm going to sell that as a feature. You know, sometimes people, when they want to go to sleep, they'll just kind of play like the sounds of a nice rainstorm. So, you know, put this episode on when you're laying down to bed, learn some science, uh, get some nice soothing tones of a thunderstorm in the background. Should be great. Um, So... We're back from winter break or from summer break, uh, and we are well rested, recharged, ready to go. It's winter in the southern hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. And so what that means is we're going to have a ton of content coming your way over the next several weeks as we push toward the Macro Factor release date. So Macro Factor is the nutrition app we've been putting together. We're super excited about it. We have identified. Uh, kind of a target launch date in mid-September. And between now and then, we're going to have a ton of content coming out. So keep an eye on the website. Keep an eye on our Instagram, our Facebook group, our subreddit. That's where you're going to find all the different articles and other content that comes out between now and then. Along those lines, we're also going to try a slightly new format for a couple kind of extra podcast episodes. So on September 2nd, we're going to try to do a live Q&A episode. So we're, we're probably going to be using the YouTube live stream feature. And what we want to do is have a, a episode that is purely dedicated to answering listener questions. And we also want to do that live. Uh, so we're really excited about that. Once we figure out the logistics, uh, you know, like I said, keep an eye on the Facebook group and the subreddit. We'll get out all the information about exactly when it's going to occur and how to access uh, that live event. 
But we're stoked about it. And if you submitted questions for today's episode, either on in the Facebook group or in the subreddit, we're holding on to those until we do that live event. We'll probably start out that event answering some questions that we have saved up, give people a chance to kind of fill into the uh, the the chat area, uh, and then you know we'll we'll start answering some live questions and. It'll be a great ch- uh, chance to interact uh, with everybody live and also a great chance for people to actually see what I look like. Uh, I've worked really hard to not be photographed since about 2017. All my social media profile pictures are me in competition shape uh, like four years ago. And people are often quite surprised to see that I don't maintain uh, like four or 5% body fat year round uh, and, and I'm not extremely tan. So people will get an update about exactly what I look like. Um, so with all that being said, uh, Greg, how goes the road to the stage? Oh, it goes pretty well, I would say, uh, all things considered. As you mentioned, uh, I I recently uh, got the plague, aka hand, foot, and mouth disease, which I thought was fake. Uh, I, I knew of foot and mouth disease, which like livestock can get. I did not realize that there was a human analog, but apparently there is, and a lot of people get it as young children. I did not, so I had no immunity to it. Uh, And I have to say, getting hand, foot, and mouth disease as an adult absolutely sucks. Uh, I was sick as a dog for about a week and uh, still have just like skin peeling all over my body. That's That's an excellent visual for you. Uh, so anyway, would not recommend hand, foot, and mouth disease. Uh, but yeah, since the, um, since the last episode of the podcast aired and the last Road to the Stage segment, uh, both went on vacation and got very sick and was not giving a single shit about my diet for either of those occasions. Uh, and I'm still down about a pound, pound and a half. Uh, since then, uh, weight trend is now below 247, occasionally waking up below 245. Uh, so that's, uh, that's all good stuff. So yeah, I, I could have made more progress over the last six weeks or whatever it is, but, uh, all, all things considered, you know, small win is still a win and I'll take it. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, in my road to enlightenment, uh, I mentioned in a previous episode that for the time being, I'm not eating meat. Uh, so I wanted to make this a useful segment. Uh, so for a variety of different reasons, people might decide that they want to scale down their meat intake. Uh, and I have found a couple of things to be really helpful. Um, I've mentioned previously that lentil soup is one of my go-to meals. I highly recommend it. It's uh, very inexpensive to make, very easy to make keeps for a long time in the refrigerator, which is great for bulk cooking. Uh, and yeah, you just pop it in, heat it up. It's a really nice protein source uh, that that is, has really formed like the foundation of my diet lately. Um, another thing that I've been getting into lately is uh, like Asian inspired stir fries, which are fantastic. Uh, so I found out that my grocery store keeps like uh, a variety of different Asian sauces uh, that are really, really good. So I've been doing these like tofu Asian inspired stir fries with these like Asian sauces. Uh, I'm not much of a chef. Uh, no one's ever accused me of being much of a chef. So I don't really know how these sauces are made or what they're called, but I can assure you that they're very good. So (laughs) if you're limited in terms of your skill set in the kitchen, 
uh, and you're trying to cut down on meat intake and you're like, how am I going to have like a well-balanced meal that's got plenty of protein, plenty of vegetables? Um, Asian stir fry with tofu is the way to go. Super easy, really, really nice meal. So hopefully that's somewhat helpful. I know a lot of people do like uh, one of the things I see on social media sometimes is like meatless Monday. And people wonder like, uh, okay, if I'm going to like go out of my way to reduce meat intake, you know, for one day of the week or just in general, how am I going to make this work with a high protein goal? There's some really, really doable ways, uh, really easy ways to make that work. Uh, So Greg, what about this week's feats of strength? Uh, yeah, so there there are several. Uh, we've got three from the world of powerlifting and four from uh, weightlifting in the recent Olympics. So starting with powerlifting, uh, a an old favorite of the feats of strength segment, Dave Ricks. Uh, recently turned 62 years old, and as one does for one 60-second birthday, uh, he squatted 282 kilograms or 622 pounds for a smooth set of six. Uh, I think that is how most people celebrate their 60-second birthday, so uh, I'm glad to see he has jumped on that trend. Um, he, he does that like every year, right? Is he, he does some kind of feat of strength for his birthday. Yeah, he, he always squats 600 and something for a bunch of reps. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he started that for maybe his 57th or 58th birthday, and I think he's stronger now, which <laughs> really just doesn't make any sense. No, but, I, uh, I look forward to his birthdays more than my own because I'm like, what is he going to do this time? Yeah, and, and also I feel like when I turn a new age i'm like ah i'm a year closer to death but i feel like when dave ricks has a birthday he is a year younger like well he's he's certainly a year stronger he's got some benjamin button shit going on yeah i I don't understand how somebody continues getting better and better and better like into their 60s it's incredible makes no sense uh all right so uh moving on Uh, someone else who we've mentioned on feats of strength before Andrei Sapoznikov, a Russian bench specialist, improved his own bench press world record by three kilograms in the 90 kilo or 198 pound class. Uh, He bench pressed 280 kilos or 617 pounds raw, uh, again, at a body weight under 200, which is absolutely absurd. Uh, And then also someone else who we've mentioned on Feats of Strength before, uh, Daniel Zamani, uh, Iranian bench specialist. We've uh, we've talked about this before. If you want to go back, I think a three episodes, I think, is when we we talked about him before. Uh, Iranian bench specialist. He's been putting up some absolutely absurd training footage on Instagram. We're somewhat we're we're mildly skeptical about some of these lifts because his prior competition history. Suggests that he's very strong, but not as absurdly strong as his training footage suggests. But people also say that he used to be clean and he just recently started using gear and that's allowed his strength to blow up. I don't know. Uh, but there's uh, whatever. So just to start with the lift, uh, he recently benched 352 and a half kilograms or 777 pounds in the gym. Uh, that's only two and a half kilos off of Julius Maddox's world record. And so here, here's the exciting bit. Uh, he and Julius Maddox are um, scheduled to square off at Iron Wars 5 
in January this this upcoming year, uh, assuming that his, that uh, Zamani's visa situation gets worked out. Uh, so if you if you have any connections in the in the U.S. visa office, pull some <laughs> strings, get him his fucking visa. I our our uh, editorial position about Daniel Zamani's bench press on this podcast is we very much hope that it's legit because I like seeing people bench press a shitload of weight. So I very much hope it's real. Um, and yeah, I, I would love to see he and Julius Maddox push each other for several years. And who knows, maybe after 800 falls, maybe they'll bench 850, maybe they'll bench 900. God, that seems so implausible. But then again, 800 seemed very implausible just a few years ago. So who the fuck knows? Um, anyway, very strong. Hopefully he can he can make it over here for Iron Wars 5. Yeah, and it's you know it's one thing to watch somebody chase a number. That alone is pretty cool when it's a meaningful number. Uh, but to watch two people go head to head adds another layer of, of drama and excitement to it. So oh, for sure. ho- hopefully that'll get sorted out. And we'll be able to see them both at Iron Wars 5. Yes, sir. All right, moving on to weightlifting. Going to start with Heidelin Diaz, a female Filipino weightlifter. Uh, She won her class and also in the process won the first gold medal in Philippines history. Uh, Very emotional lift, very cool story. Uh, When the COVID pandemic was kicking off, she actually could not get back to the Philippines after competing internationally, I believe in Peru. So she was stranded in Malaysia for five months and for a period of time when she was trying to prep for the Olympics. Uh, her her training setup involved lifting heavy water bottles that were just hanging onto uh, like a bamboo stick which, as I understand it, isn't ideal training conditions. Uh, and then someone hit her up and said, like, hey, I have a gazebo where you can <laughs> lift weights outside for a few months. Uh, so she she had to overcome some adversity just to continue training for these Olympics, um, much, less, much less winning them. And then going back a few years as well, I think two or three years ago, she was, I believe, erroneously uh, loosely connected to an alleged plot to overthrow the president of the Philippines. Um, like I said, as I understand it, those rumors were not substantiated. Uh, but she's apparently been dealing with like threats of all sorts from Duterte supporters for the last few years because she was uh, connect- er- erroneously, I believe, connected to that plot. Uh, so she's she's overcome a lot of adversity and uh, won her weight class by a kilo, snagging the first gold medal in Philippines history. Uh, very, very cool story. Um, moving over to the men's side of things. We're going to talk about Lasha in a second, because of course we are. You knew that was coming if you've listened to this podcast before. Uh, But outside of Lasha, I think the most dominating male performance in the Olympics was uh, Shi Ziyong from China, uh, 73 kilo weight class, totaled 364 kilograms. That was a new world record, Um, and it wasn't particularly competitive. That was a incredibly impressive performance uh, from him. Uh, Moving up a weight class to the 81 class, Lu Salshun, who uh, 
is probably one of my favorite weightlifters. So I, I think my interest in weightlifting peaked around 2012, 2013, uh, which is when Lou won his first gold medal uh, in the 2012 Olympics. And that, that was when like the popularity of the Chinese weightlifting team was really blowing up on social media. And Lou was probably the biggest star of the team at the time. Uh, Partially because he was outrageously strong and partially because he had and still has just just an incredible physique. He looks fantastic. Uh, and he still does. So you'll notice he won his first medal in 2012. Most weightlifters aren't competitive at the top of the world for three straight Olympiads. Uh, and he wasn't young in 2012. Uh, so he th- he won this gold medal at 37 years old. The next oldest male gold medalist in weightlifting at the, these Olympics was 28. So old man on the platform, um, still won his weight class. And people were expecting like, hey, you're 37. He's been dealing with back injuries for a couple years. People were people were thinking that he probably wouldn't even make these Olympics. Um People were thinking he he wasn't even the best 81 kilo lifter in China. So it was kind of surprising that he even qualified, uh, much less won. And so folks were thinking he'd probably retire, like go out on top, win his gold medal, right off into the sunset. But he's he's saying in interviews that he's planning on Paris 2024 uh, and stepping back on the Olympic platform at 40 years old. And uh, I hope he does it. He's so strong. He's so cool. Uh, big Lou fans on this podcast. Uh, and then finally, in the male super heavyweight division, Lasha Talakadze from Georgia, our big beautiful boy, did what everyone expected him to do, set world records in the snatch, clean and jerk, and total, uh, absolutely dominated the division, greatest super heavyweight weightlifter ever. Um, and now he's also only one kilo away from breaking the historical world record uh, in the clean and jerk held by Taryn Yanko ever since I think like 1988 or something like that. That that record's been standing for a long time, which I'll note uh, was prior to uh, any sort of drug testing whatsoever. We are not vouching for Lasha being lifetime drug free on this podcast, certainly. But the fact that uh, current lifters can't just blast gear all the way into the competition that eh, probably makes a difference. So the fact that he's hitting the biggest snatches ever, the biggest total ever, and is one kilo off the biggest clean and jerk ever, uh, outrageously impressive stuff. Um, we're, we're both big Lou fans and big Lasha fans around here. Is it uh, correct that he had to take all of his attempts back to back? Yeah, yeah, he did. So uh, yeah, if <laughs> that's worth mentioning. So if you're, say, a powerlifter and you're not acquainted with with weightlifting competition, uh, in powerlifting, you do attempts in a round. So, you know, the person who puts in the lightest attempt for the round goes first. The person who puts in the heaviest goes last. Everyone takes their first attempt. Everyone takes their second attempt. Everyone takes their third attempt. Uh, in weightlifting, they do ascending bar. So, you know, if the weakest person in a flight says like, ah, I'm going to start my snatches at 150 kilos, and then my second is 153, and my third is 155, and the next weakest person in the class says, well, I'm not starting until 156. Then the weakest person takes all three of their attempts before anyone else goes. The bar only goes up, it never goes down. Uh, and so 
Lasha is so much stronger than all of the other super heavies in the world. Uh, his openers were higher than anyone else's third <laughs> attempts. And so he had to do all of his lifts back to back to back. Um, so yeah, I, I, well, I mean, if you watched his lifts, he was clearly good for more on this day. Um, I, I believe he gets paid a bonus for every record he sets. So he breaks the records by one kilo nice. at a time. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he was definitely still good for more, even follow even following himself for every attempt. But if, you know, if he had more rest between his attempts, I think he'd be good for even more than that. Um, but yeah, just, just utterly dominant performance. Yeah. I just love the idea of being such a standout in your class that it's like, uh, uh, you guys are done lifting. Okay, cool. I'm going to go ahead and get started. <laughs> like that's, yeah, that's just insane at, at the Olympic level. You know, it's, it's not like a local meet, you know, that's, it, that's wild. Um, all right. So moving on, uh, got a research review segment this week. And there was really no question about what would be covered in this episode of the podcast because uh, this paper has been everywhere. I've got so many people who have reached out uh, and, and mentioned it or asked about it or posted about it. Uh, the paper is by Ponser and colleagues, uh, the very same Ponser that we've talked about on the podcast before. He wrote the popular book called Burn, I believe. Uh, he's most known in our area for the the constrained energy expenditure model, uh, suggesting that if uh, exercise activity gets really, really, really high, then there are mechanisms to kind of constrain total energy expenditure throughout the day. Um, but the paper uh, was called Daily Energy Expenditure Through the Human Life Course. Um and this is a, a study where they looked at total daily energy expenditure values from over uh, over 6,400 research participants from 29 different countries. And so that sounds like a hell of a study. You know, a lot of times we'll talk about studies on the podcast and it's 20 people from the same city. So you might be wondering, how does someone do a study like this? With that type of, you know, it's not like they were just looking at body weight. You know, you can find a database, get get the information. We're talking about total daily energy expenditure from 6,400 people across 29 different countries. Obviously, this was a major international collaboration. Uh, and this is, you know, Greg, you come on the podcast a lot and you whinge and you whine and you complain and you moan about the state of uh, science and we've talked, I don't, I'm usually really upbeat and positive, but we've talked in the past about open science and what open science could do and the type of doors it could open up and the type of projects it could enable. And I think this paper, it's great because it got so much attention and so many people are interested in it because the conclusion is uh, pretty impactful. Uh, you know, so a lot of people were drawn to it, but I love that this paper got so much attention because it's such a good example of what some of these open science principles can lead to. Uh, so this particular project uh, was enabled by this big doubly labeled water database, this big kind of, uh, it's this almost like a consortium it's a dedicated project where they've got this big database that is maintained. 
and it includes data from all these different countries and all these different research groups that use doubly labeled water. And it's got measurements that have been taken between, uh, you know, 1981 all the way up to present. And you'll see with this paper, uh, within this, this one analysis, they've got data ranging from, I mean, basically like newborns all the way up to people in their 90s. So the idea is it's this dedicated project that is committed to pooling the results, not just the results, but the actual raw data from all these different projects. So it will enable data sharing these really insightful, nuanced analyses that simply would not be feasible in a single lab group. So it's fantastic when people pool these resources uh, they make their data open and accessible. It can enable these types of huge collaborative projects that are so valuable. Uh, you look like you're about to say something. Yeah, I was just going to say, as a note, obviously it's good for science. But one of the things that frustrates me about the fact that like open data practices don't have broad adoption already is I think one of the things uh, standing between us and broader adoption of open data practices is kind of like paranoia, like hey, are, are people going to take my data and like publish findings from it before I can, after I put in all of this work? But the thing is, like, so it, there's there's fear that it might negatively impact your career to make data open. That That's one of the, the common reasons for opposing open data that, that I hear discussed pretty frequently. But the thing is, like, this paper is going to be cited a trillion times. Like, it's going to get so many citations. And everyone who contributed to the doubly labeled water database, or the vast majority of them, are authors on the paper. Like, this is gonna this is gonna do like buku numbers for their H indexes. Uh, contributing to this database just from this one paper is going to be a huge thing for all of these guys' careers. Yeah. Guys, guys and gals. Uh, and like that's that's the type of thing that frustrates me about the fact that open data isn't more common because like there is the very, very small chance that you might be hurt a little bit on the margins and a very, very good chance that you'll get a chance to be on a hugely important paper like this that is inevitably going to get cited thousands of times that could very much benefit your career. Um, so yeah, b- not having open data is both bad for science and bad for scientists. But, yeah. uh, you know, institutional inertia, I think, keeps it from being more common. So anyway, you mentioned me whinging about open science. And uh, there we go. I yeah. did it. You're welcome. So the thing that's uh, really cool about this is when we write articles for our research review, monthly applications and strength sport, at the end of each article, we have uh, a section about next steps, basically like what should be the next study or what's a way that you could redesign this study to kind of answer the question that we're interested in. And a lot of times we say like, well, in a perfect world, the next study would be this, but who has the time, who has the money, who has the resources, who has the energy? Uh, But when you look at this type of huge collaborative effort that involves, uh, you know, multiple different studies and multiple different trial sites, uh, these kind of pie in the sky ideas actually do become feasible, which is a really powerful thing. So uh, (laughs) 
I've probably given away the fact that I think this was a good paper. I thought it was very cool. Um, a very brief note, one of the reasons that this whole project was established is because doubly labeled water is a very expensive and labor-intensive method of assessing total daily energy expenditure. So it's one of those things where people realized if we are going to, you know, maximally utilize this uh, this valuable data from this particular method, we probably ought to make sure these data don't go to waste. We should probably pool this and organize it accordingly. So doubly labeled water, one of the biggest questions I've seen people ask about this paper is what is it? You know, how does it work? So when we think about measuring energy expenditure, we might think about, uh, you know, having somebody just kind of sit down in a chair and doing indirect calorimetry to get their resting metabolic rate. So measuring their expired gases to get an idea of their their resting energy expenditure. Some studies take it a step further and they have people stay in a metabolic chamber, usually for no more than like 24 hours or so. And a metabolic chamber is like, what if instead of breathing into a little machine for an hour or whatever, you stay in a little tiny apartment <laughs> that actually captures all of your gases and analyzes them and measures your energy expenditure. And so there are these weird little apartments where you're like sitting in there like kind of like a goldfish and they're measuring your energy expenditure and you're like, okay, well that sounds better than just kind of sitting in a chair for a brief period of time and getting only the resting component. But the problem is you have to wonder how much your total daily energy expenditure is being impacted by the fact that you're being put into this different environment that is a little bit restrictive. You know, it, it's still like this weird little tiny apartment chamber. Uh, it, it's not perfectly representative of how you live your day-to-day -day life. And so doubly labeled water is a totally different approach to estimating uh, your, your total daily energy expenditure. And before we get into the details of the Ponser study, I think a very fair question is, what exactly is doubly labeled water and how does this method actually work? Uh, I know a lot of people reading through this paper or looking at summaries of the paper, their first question is, you know, is doubly labeled water a valid method for looking at total daily energy expenditure? And, you know, starting out with the conclusion, it's a, it's definitely a valid method. Uh, it's a very nice method. A lot of people consider it to be the gold standard method. Um, the way it works is quite uh, nuanced. So if you want to get into all the details of how it works, I am going to link an open access paper in the show notes of today's episode that walks through every last detail of how doubly labeled water works as a method for estimating total daily energy expenditure. But for a very brief uh, oversimplified overview of how it works, this particular method works by uh, basically enriching the participant's body water with heavy isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen. Uh, and then you determine the difference in washout kinetics between those isotopes, those heavy isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen. And by looking at those washout kinetics, usually measured based on urine sampling, you can get a really good idea of the overall rate of carbon dioxide production. And you can use that 
to then estimate total daily energy expenditure, and you can do it with very acceptable uh, validity and reliability. So it's a really, really nice method for looking at total daily energy expenditure uh, in people who are just going about their day-to-day lives. You know, they don't have to sit down and, and breathe into a tube for an hour. They don't have to stay in a special uh, metabolic chamber apartment for several days at a time. They can go about their normal day-to-day life, and we can still get these really good estimates of their total daily energy expenditure. So they with this study, they also had some body composition data And like I said, doubly labeled water estimates of total daily energy expenditure from a huge group of people, uh, male and female. Uh, They even had uh, some pregnant women in the study. Uh, In in some of the data here, they had uh, age ranging from infants all the way to uh, people well into their 90s. And there were a few main observations that kind of jumped out. So one that's probably not super surprising is that fat-free mass is a notable predictor of basal energy expenditure or resting energy expenditure along with total daily energy expenditure. Um, It's a notable predictor, but not a perfect predictor. There's still a tremendous amount of variability from person to person in terms of their total energy expenditure at a given value of fat-free mass. So uh, there was clearly a relationship, but it was not a perfectly perfectly predictive relationship by any means. Uh, a couple of the observations, uh, as you dig a little deeper into the paper, did get a lot of interest for pretty obvious reasons. So one of the uh, observations in the paper is that males and females have pretty similar energy expenditure when body composition is accounted for. Uh, So a lot of times you'll hear people uh, suggesting that that's not the case, Um, but but this provides pretty good evidence uh, with, with a really nice large sample of participants and a really nice uh, measurement method to indicate that the main difference in you know uh, basal and total energy expenditure between males and females really comes down to uh, the amount of it comes down to body composition essentially. So once that's accounted for, fairly similar values uh, for males and females. One of the the things that got the most attention from this paper, uh, kind of like the main highlight that a lot of people were interested in, is that when accounting for body composition energy expenditure remains pretty stable from the age of 20 to 60. So basically all the way throughout adulthood until the age of 60, uh, energy expenditure remained quite stable. Uh, Even during pregnancy, which I found to be really fascinating, but when they accounted for the lean mass of the developing fetus, the model still worked out quite well and energy expenditure was pretty stable, which I thought was was pretty wild. but that got a lot of attention, right? Because one of the most common things we hear about energy expenditure throughout the lifespan is like, oh man, I, I know you're lean now, but wait till you hit insert whatever number, right? Some people say, wait till you get 30, wait wait till you turn 40, wait till you turn 50. It's, it's, very, it's very convenient typically that 
the age at which the individual making this claim started gaining weight (laughs) happens to always coincide with the age at which metabolic rate slows down. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that obviously it's become such a common thing to hear, uh, that this data indicating the opposite is a huge reason that it got so much attention. Um, another observation is that beyond 60 fat free mass tended to drop. Uh, total daily energy expenditure tended to drop. But interestingly, they noted in the paper that fat mass didn't seem to really go up. And a common concern is, you know, once I get to a certain age, energy expenditure is going to go down, and that's going to cause me to have some uh, precipitous fat gain that occurs after that. Uh, And these data did not seem to support that idea. Rather, it looked like fat mass stayed relatively stable the main change that was occurring after the age of 60 with regards to body composition was just a reduction of fat-free mass. Now, as I mentioned previously, these data did reflect a reduction in total daily energy expenditure beyond the age of 60. And naturally, these researchers uh, kind of dug a little deeper and talked about some potential things that could have been contributing to that effect that was observed. And so, of course, the loss of fat-free mass is going to contribute to that when we're looking at absolute terms. Uh, They also acknowledge that lower activity level probably plays into that a little bit beyond the age of 60. Uh, They also pointed towards, so like even after accounting for body composition, they still saw that like relative to a given amount of fat-free mass, total energy expenditure was dropping. And they pointed to potentially a decline in organ level uh, metabolic rates. And I was really interested in that. And so I started digging around because like there are these kind of accepted values that different lean tissues have different metabolic rates. So like the liver, for example, a common common number you'll see is a liver burns 200 kilocalories per kilogram per day. Uh, or brain tissue, 240 calories per kilogram per day, heart and kidneys up around 440, Uh, skeletal muscle 13. Like those are pretty standard numbers. I found a really cool paper. Oh no, I forget who the author is. I'll I'll put the link in the show notes. (laughs) That sounded so (laughs) insincere. No, that was I. No, I. That was a very sincere. I, I know you meant it, but just the way. Oh no, I forgot who the author is. Oh God, oh no. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, no, I, I thought I had it in the caption, but I don't. But what was really interesting, I this I don't think this paper was cited in the the Ponser paper. But there is uh, evidence indicating that some of these uh, organ-level metabolic rates do drop uh, throughout the lifespan. So the numbers generally tend to be a little bit higher in the age group of 21 to 30 years old when you compare them to like 51 to 73. Uh, So for example, uh, the the number for kidneys, and, and these are all in kilocalories per kilogram per day, but the kidney number drops from like 443 to 426. Uh, The brain number from 242 to 233. So nothing huge when looking at, you know, a given individual tissue per kilogram, but you do start to see that general idea kind of panning out that some of these tissue level metabolic rates 
do decline with aging. And these are not things that could be attributed to just like, you know, the, the typical less act, you know, less physical activity, a little bit of sarcopenia going on. So I thought that was really, uh, really fascinating. And then of course, one of the other observations that stood out, I haven't seen as many people focusing on this in the interpretation. The main thing people are interested in is that flat line from 20 to 60. And, and I think the data totally support that interpretation. And that took a lot of people by surprise. But one of the things that jumped out to me is even when you control for body composition and sex and age, energy expenditure can still vary quite considerably between individuals. And there's really no easy way to predict that variation for a specific individual. So uh, it's exceedingly difficult. Like if we look at, you know, how what, what should be a total daily energy expenditure value for a person with 52 kilograms of fat-free mass? We, based on their fat-free mass, can that can tell us something about the range that we're likely to be in, but it's very difficult to precisely predict that variation between individuals at a given level of fat-free mass. So even after you're accounting for things like body composition, sex, and age. Uh, So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind because we see a lot of people who do a lot of comparing, right? So they'll say like, okay, I'm about, you know, 170 pounds. I'm about 14% body fat. I know someone who's also you know, that weight and that percent body fat, but I feel like they get to eat so much more than I do. We see that a lot, especially when people are dieting, they start looking around Instagram and saying like, how come everybody's dieting on such high calories, even though they're the same size as me? And the reality is there's gonna be some of that variation from person to person. And it's because we live in a completely inveterate flexing culture and like, People are only going to talk about how many calories they're eating if it's a flex. Yeah. E- either either like, hey, I'm eating so little but still like getting by so like I'm cool and tough or like, oh man, I look great but I'm also eating so much sucks to be you and not be able to eat this much. Like the the normal range for just about anything I think is like pretty unrepresented on the internet because like generally it's it's only values that are flexible like able to be flexed that uh that that people are going to talk about yeah i remember one time i was talking to helms and uh we were talking about kind of maturing as bodybuilders and getting better from show to show to show as our careers kind of progressed and i was like you know the times that I started to like really get lean and feel great about it, um, my one weird trick was that I started eating very low calorie intakes that like seem almost not advisable. And he's like, "Oh yeah, that was my trick too." <laughs> it's like you know, you hear, all, you see all these people who are like super lean. They're like, "Oh, look at all these calories I'm eating." You're like, "Oh, I guess that's normal. I guess a lot of people get insanely shredded on very moderate calorie intakes." And like, nah, most people got to cut pretty low to get like contest level lean. Um, but yeah, some people, they're not lying, but they are flexing. You know, some yeah. people are able to get really lean on fairly moderate calories, which is uh, uh, feasible based on these data, but certainly not the norm. Uh, so 
skipping forward uh, to some practical applications uh, that, that kind of jumped out to me as I read this. First of all, if you have low fat-free mass and you wish to lose some fat mass, uh, your calories might have to get pretty low. You know, like I, I've seen one of the things on Instagram that I've seen is people making like broad universal statements about like a singular generalizable lower limit for calorie intake that should never be crossed for any reason. And sometimes the number people give is surprisingly high. Like just to be very direct about what I'm saying, you'll see people who are like, no person should ever eat under this many calories for any reason. Like you're eating less than like what a toddler needs or something like that. And like, there's nothing good that comes from eating insufficient calories, like going excessively low with your diet, being excessively restrictive. Like I I don't like to promote that concept of like, oh, you should always go lower and be tougher and grind harder. That's not the case. But I think when you look at this data, you look at the actual values and you look at the variability, you can see why it can be uh, inadvisable to set like a singular number that represents the lower limit for every possible situation because you you can look at the actual raw values here and say like, man, for some of these individuals, especially the ones with low fat-free mass, for them to induce a substantial calorie deficit would require some very low calorie intakes. So basically the idea is get away from speaking in those universally generalizable terms when it comes to what low or high calorie intakes look like. It's got to be something that's really individualized based on the energy expenditure of that person. Another thing, uh, for adults under the age of 60, Fat-free mass is a major factor that's driving total daily energy expenditure estimates rather than necessarily looking at sex or age. And there's going to be some covariance there, right? So uh, we might see that fat-free mass generally tends to correlate with age within that range or with sex within uh, within that range. But uh, fat-free mass does seem to be one of the things that's really driving that. And I kind of feel partially vindicated about that. Uh, it's not something that I've ever been like super vocal about, but I've always been really partial to the Cunningham equation. And I feel like the Cunningham equation doesn't get any love. Uh, and I'm not totally certain why I can speculate about some ideas, but I mean, y- you know that I've I've argued on behalf of the Cunningham equation behind closed doors like... I'm really partial to it. I think it does a great job estimating energy expenditure if you have to go with kind of a a canned population level equation. And the Cunningham equation is very simple. I'm referring to the 1980 version. Uh, all you have there is uh, the, the only actual variable going into it is fat-free mass. Uh, and I've always been partial to it. I think a lot of people overlook it because it's almost like deceptively simple. Um, but for a lifter who's got a decent amount of muscle mass, I'll take that equation over some of the more common ones that use, you know, height or weight or age or sex rather than just using a direct estimate of fat-free mass. So I I felt partially vindicated by that. Uh, and, uh, I should have been more vocal about my thoughts because then I could really be dunking on people here. I, I, I did think it was funny when, uh, 
when you mentioned this paper because you know this got published uh and it, it was on a day that you weren't coming over to work and you know it was making the rounds so i was like okay like I, i'm sure the next time i see eric he's gonna want to talk about this um and and all of the headlines related to this were about aging specifically um and like we know each other well enough that whenever a big paper gets published and we know we're going to discuss it i've got a pretty good idea of of what your takes are going to be both like your normal takes and your hot takes but honestly like this one caught me out of out of the <laughs> blue because i i thought you were going to have something to say about metabolic rate and aging and you came over and you were like hey did you see the the recent ponser paper i was like yeah and he's like and, and you were like dude I feel so vindicated about the Cunningham <laughs> equation, and uh, that was not that was not the direction I thought it was going to go. Yeah, I just I don't know. I think it's it's been overlooked. It's the underdog. It's deceptively simple, but I've just always felt that it works really well. They said it was finished. Exactly. They said it had no chance. <laughs> yeah, and like Tinsley had a paper not too long ago where it performed really well, and in the chatter about that paper, there wasn't a ton of chatter about it, but. <laughs> I didn't see anyone going like, oh, man, why have we been ignoring the Cunningham equation? Uh, I don't know. I'm a Cunningham guy. But anyway, that's one of the takeaways. Uh, Another thing, like a a pretty obvious takeaway, I think, when it comes to the practical application is as we age, uh, we start approaching that age of 60 and beyond. We, We certainly do want to prioritize training and nutrition strategies that help us keep our activity level high while building or maintaining fat-free mass. I think that's a very uh, actionable thing that we can kind of circle and say, here's something we can do uh, that that is likely to really set us up for very successful aging, delaying sarcopenia. There's really nothing to be lost in that pursuit of maintaining fat-free mass beyond the age of 60. Because they did see that beyond the age of 60, that fat-free mass did start to drop off a little bit. Some of the factors they pointed to uh, relating to total daily energy expenditure might not be modifiable or, I mean, we frankly don't know enough. And what I'm referring to is that organ-specific, tissue-level-specific metabolic rate. Who knows how how much we can intervene on some of that. Uh, but the things we certainly can impact, physical activity level and, and doing our best to stave off sarcopenia to the best of our ability. I don't have any like tips for supercharging your kidneys at this time. Maybe they'll develop. You know, I, I'm waiting for, um, I, I, we're going to talk about uh, the supplement that people are, are recommending with very little evidence later, right? Yes. All, all right. So I, I would not be surprised. I'm not predicting this, but I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years, uh, you know, people are like, oh, man, you know, organ metabolic rate drops off with age. So, like, you know, if you want to maintain the, the metabolic rate of your brain and liver, like, you got to go with the Adderall DNP stack in the nursing home. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. I don't even want to know where that's going to go. Uh, <laughs> there, there are just too many bad directions Look, I, to take I, it. I, I'm just saying, like, the... The the people who are very invested in bodybuilding supplements are gonna get older eventually. Yeah. And eventually those those supplement speculations are going to drift from like, 
you know, how can I build the most muscle possible to like, how can I live as long as possible or like stay, stay shredded into my seventies or whatever. And I'm just saying, I, I fully anticipate that like someone is going to take this information about organ metabolic rates and just start recommending like low dose DNP to elders. Yeah, most likely. Uh, certainly not my recommendation. I can tell you that. Um, another takeaway here is, uh, because of the substantial variation that we see in this data from person to person, it's really important to recognize that, you know, one size does not fit all when it comes to caloric intake. Even if you have the same exact fat-free mass as somebody else, there's a lot of variation from person to person, which is one of the reasons that like, you know, we built a diet app because we think it's good and we think it does useful things. I think when you see this kind of variability within a data set, you it becomes apparent that some of the population level uh, equations, even the ones I love, such as the Cunningham equation, they're only getting you within a, a kind of a ballpark estimate. And it's the the day-to-day monitoring of your energy intake uh, and changes in body mass, you, you really do have to titrate your caloric intake and, and use that information to get a really good estimation of your total daily energy expenditure on an individual level. You know, we, we can't all go uh, hang out in a metabolic chamber. We can't all volunteer for a study using doubly labeled water. So for the general fitness enthusiast, how do we actually figure out a really solid estimate of our total daily energy expenditure? I think the best way to do it is like I said, you have to monitor your energy intake, monitor how your weight and body composition is changing over time and triangulate that information. And that's one of the things that uh, if I can brag a little bit, I think the app, which we're calling Macro Factor, uh, I think it does a really nice job of smoothing out that data and and really triangulating that information to get get a good estimate. But um, the the most important thing, like I said, is even if you're not going to, you know, track it on an app or anything like that. Make sure that you're being observant. If you want a really good estimate of your total daily energy expenditure, be very observant of your energy intake and over time, consistently monitoring how that's influencing body weight, body composition. You should be able to use that information to, uh, you know, you can use an equation to get you close if you have no idea, but use that information to really refine that estimate and lock in at a number that's pretty accurate for you. Uh, all right, Greg, you've got, uh, an update here about BFR training. Yeah. A little, little research roundup. Um, so one of the, one of the purported benefits of blood flow restriction training is that it can basically serve as like free volume essentially. Um, so one, one of the common things that people said about blood flow restriction training, myself included, uh, is that it seems to low load training with blood flow restriction seems to uh, promote muscle hypertrophy while also having either no effect or virtually no effect on muscle damage or um, markers of, of muscle fatigue or change in performance like 24 hours post training. So, you know, for example, if you did 
you know, any sort of relatively challenging conventional training enough to promote a hypertrophic stimulus, uh, you know, it's, it's probably going to take uh, at least a couple days to recover from reasonably well. But with blood flow restriction, what the early data was suggesting was that it could promote hypertrophy uh, with virtually no elevated markers in muscle damage and full recovery within 24 hours. So you could uh, basically add it as free volume into a program uh, and not really have to to pay much of a cost for it. Um, however, that has become a somewhat contentious position in, in the research. Several studies have been published showing that low load training with blood flow restriction uh, can cause very, very substantial amounts of muscle damage. So there was a recent systematic review published um, just to discuss the blood flow restriction and muscle damage literature uh, and also to try to get to the bottom of, you know, not just does blood flow restriction training cause muscle damage or not, but what factors maybe predict whether or not there will be robust elevations in markers of muscle damage after low-load blood flow-restricted training. Uh, So the title of this systematic review was Effects of Resistance Training with Blood Flow Restriction on Muscle Damage Markers in Adults, a Systematic Review by DeQuiros et al. Um, And so there were 21 studies that uh, met the inclusion criteria for this systematic review, uh, and they were looking at uh, whether there were elevated markers of muscle damage following uh, blood flow-restricted resistance training, Um, So delayed onset muscle soreness was the most common marker of muscle damage they looked at, uh, but some studies also looked at reductions in performance, uh, muscle edema, so swelling post-training, changes in joint ranges of motion, and biomarkers like creatine, kinase, and myoglobin. Uh, So there there were a lot of various markers of muscle damage that they were looking at in this systematic review, and, and I don't really think it makes a ton of sense to go into a ton of detail about all of them. Uh, but the the broad trend observed in this systematic review is, is basically the determining factor is whether people train to failure or not. So the kind of classic low load training with blood flow restriction protocol um, is the 30-15-15-15 protocol. That's, that's what was used in the vast majority of the early studies that suggested that blood flow restricted training didn't really cause muscle damage. And for that protocol, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, You use about 30% of your one rep max, do a set of 30, short rest interval, about a 30 second rest interval. So set of 30, rest 30 seconds, set of 15, rest 30 seconds, set of 15, rest 30 seconds, another set of 15, and you're done. So Uh, That protocol and other non-failure protocols used in the research do seem to promote uh, gains in strength in in untrained individuals, probably less so in trained people, uh, and um, it seems also to promote hypertrophy, but also doesn't seem to result in much, if any, muscle damage. Whereas the failure protocols used in more recent studies, you know, for example, just three, four sets to failure with blood flow restriction uh, does seem to result in pretty robust muscle damage. Um, So, I mean, that's, I I don't feel like that should be too terribly surprising. Uh, We do know that uh, uh, elevations in fatigue, how long fatigue lasts in in muscle damage itself, 
uh, all tend to increase as you get closer to failure. Uh, but you know that that's basically what they found when looking at the blood flow restricted training research as well. If you go to training or if you go to failure, uh, you'll probably get quite a bit of muscle damage. If you use kind of a fixed rep protocol that generally doesn't result in failure, uh, you probably won't experience that much muscle damage. So then you may ask, well, okay, if I do blood flow restricted training uh, not to failure, am I leaving anything on the table? Um, You know, does that result in a smaller hypertrophic stimulus? I was relatively surprised to find out that there hasn't been much research looking at that. Uh, Failure versus non-failure training uh, is something that's been researched quite a bit with with conventional resistance training, but it it hasn't really been a topic of research with uh, blood flow restricted training. Uh, But there was actually a paper by Bjornsson and colleagues that I uh, reviewed in mass either last month or two months ago. Uh, title is Frequent Blood Flow Restricted Training Not to Failure and to Failure Induces Similar Gains in Myonuclei and Muscle Mass. Uh, and, you know, the, the title pretty much gives the game away. Uh, <laughs> the study used 17 men uh, using a within-subject unilateral design. So basically each subject could serve as their own control, which uh, I don't think is a great design for strength findings, but I think that's a really strong design for hypertrophy research because uh, you're you're mitigating um, most of the random error that could occur just due to to sampling variability and, and randomization to different groups. Um, and so you know they basically had one leg training four sets to failure, one leg doing the 30, 15, 15, 15 protocol, uh, and observed similar hypertrophy with both protocols. So it it seems that at least over the short term, it wasn't like a super long-term training study, but it seems like at least over the short term, uh, you both don't experience as much muscle damage if you don't go to failure, uh, and you don't really seem to be leaving much of any hypertrophy on the table by avoiding failure. So, um, you know, generally I wouldn't... Like, generally, I don't recommend training protocols ripped straight out of a resistance training study, Um, you know, because they're generally, like, fairly cookie-cutter, like, one-size-fits-all and not overly creative training prescriptions. But as far as the blood flow restriction research goes, there have been a lot of studies that use that exact 30-15-15-15 protocol, 30 seconds between sets, it has a really strong track record, seems to do everything you want blood flow restricted training to do, promotes hypertrophy, doesn't seem to cause much if any muscle damage. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's worth giving a shot if you want to do some some BFR training. Um, 30% of 1RM is kind of the stock intensity that people work at in these studies. But I, I think a decent rule of thumb is that uh, the first three sets definitely shouldn't result in failure. I think if you can get at least 12, 13 reps, but maybe fail on the last set, or maybe just have two or three reps on the last set, uh, I think that's a pretty good indicator that the load you're using is is pretty appropriate. Um, so yeah, overall, uh, non-failure BFR training seems seems to be pretty good shit. Uh, but if you do do BFR training for multiple sets to failure, it will probably result in pretty robust uh, elevations in muscle damage. Um, And then uh, there was one other BFR paper I wanted to talk about. 
this was also a systematic review and meta-analysis by Pereira Neto and colleagues. Title is Effects of Exercise Training with a Blood Flow Restriction on Vascular Function in, Re- in Adults, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Uh, and I feel like this, <laughs> this systematic review may not be interesting to anyone listening to this podcast, but I personally found it pretty important. Um, because one of the potential risks that, that folks have been whispering about for a while related to BFR training um, is not that BFR training will have a negative effect on vasculature, but that uh, one of the benefits that you get with resistance training is it tends to improve vascular health. You can uh, increase vascular compliance of your arteries and arterioles. Uh, you can get increased capillarization. Those are uh, those are beneficial effects of really any type of exercise training, but also, you know, for our purposes here at Stronger by Science, those are benefits that you can get with resistance training. Um, and, and folks have been suggesting that possibly you may not accrue positive vascular adaptations if you primarily do blood flow restricted training. And one of the reasons for that is uh, one of the main triggers of vascular adaptation with exercise training is uh, shear stress along the vessel walls. Basically, you know, blood starts blood starts pumping. Uh, it's moving fast through the arteries and arterioles. That's causing shear stress along the endothelium, and that kicks off signaling cascades that both lead to acute changes. So, you know, in the case of exercise, dilation of the vessels to get more blood to to active tissues, but also kicks off signaling cascades that result in the longitudinal adaptations to vasculature that we want with exercise. Um, And it's been suggested that maybe that doesn't occur to the same extent with blood flow restricted training. Um, You're cutting off venous blood flow, but you know, maybe the the cuff pressure messes with kind of the kinetics of arterial blood flow as well, maybe resulting in a little bit less shear stress on the artery walls, uh, maybe therefore failing to cause beneficial uh, vascular adaptations to blood flow restricted training. That's that that's a possible mechanistic uh, outcome that that people have been speculating about. So, what this systematic review and meta analysis wanted to do is basically say like, well, is is that true? <laughs> Does blood flow restricted training um, lead to smaller positive vascular adaptations than conventional training does? Uh, and long story short, no, it, it doesn't really seem to make much of a difference. Uh, they looked at markers of both uh, vascular sh- structure and function um, and basically found that blood flow restricted training had similar effects on vascular structure compared to conventional training, uh, and that it may have larger positive effects on vascular function. Primarily, they, they were looking at studies uh, that measured flow-mediated dilation and reactive hyperemia as their, their measures of vascular function. Um, so suggesting that maybe blood flow restricted training actually has larger beneficial effects on vascular function than uh, conventional training does. So it, it's worth noting that um, the the systematic review portion had quite a few studies in it. I think like 29 studies made the cut. Uh, but due to heterogeneity in outcome measures, there there were only, I think, like five or six studies in the actual meta-analyses 
uh, that that they could perform. So th- this is still like pretty tentative. Uh, so I'm certainly not claiming that this is strong evidence that, oh, actually, if you care about vascular health, blood flow restricted training is better than conventional training. I, I think that that's still a very, very tentative potential conclusion. But I, I do think uh, that that this systematic review and meta-analysis at minimum suggests that blood flow restricted training is probably not worse for positive vascular adaptations than conventional training is. Uh, so, you know, if if you had been exposed to the uh, anti-BFR for vascular health perspective, uh, this systematic review should hopefully put your mind at ease. Uh, and if you had never been exposed to that perspective before, um, you know, probably not something you need to worry about. All right, good stuff. Um, now, I've got a little segment here that we call Coach's Corner, which is usually when we do something really applied. And what I wanted to do this week is kind of build off that study by Ponser and colleagues that's got a lot of people interested in total daily energy expenditure, uh, a lot of people wondering what theirs is, a lot of people talking about this. So what I wanted to do with this Coach's Quarter uh, segment is basically, you know, if you have no idea what your total total daily energy energy expenditure is and you're thinking about starting to change your diet a little bit, maybe to induce a caloric deficit or a caloric surplus, or just make sure that you're staying at maintenance, getting a decent estimate of total daily energy expenditure can be a really helpful thing. So if you're just getting into dieting, this can be great. Uh, another potential application is if you are a coach who works with a lot of people uh with their nutrition, then this is the type of thing that you'll want to figure out when you're working with a brand new client and you have no information about what their diet is like. You know, you you have to start somewhere with an estimate of total daily energy expenditure. So I wanted to walk through some very quick, basic ways that you can get in the ballpark when it comes to that estimation. So uh, first of all, a little bit of... uh, review information here, but total daily energy expenditure has multiple components. We've got our resting energy expenditure or our basal metabolic rate. It's usually like 60 to 70% of total energy expenditure. We've also got thermic effect of feeding, usually around 10%. Exercise activity thermogenesis, usually estimated at about 5%, but obviously that's subject to a lot of variability because if you choose to exercise a ton, that's going to go up. Uh, And then we've got non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is usually around 15% or so. And this is just the energy you're spending doing active stuff that isn't intentional structured exercise. So walking around the house, raking leaves in the yard, vacuuming, you know, the drill, all that kind of stuff. So now that we know what makes up total daily energy expenditure, we got to find a way to estimate this without a lot of knowledge going into it. You know, we're kind of starting with no information aside from just baseline characteristics of the individual. So one way we could do it is the method that I call assuming. You could assume, you could estimate, or you could observe. So when I say assume, basically what we're going to do is a very basic calculation based on your body mass to say, okay, your total daily energy expenditure might be around this range. So for a lot of people, Assuming a total daily energy expenditure of about 14 to 16 kilocalories per pound of body weight, 
actually tends to work okay. Uh, this is obviously a really, really rough estimate, but for a lot of people, it gets you within the ballpark. So uh, for the people who don't use freedom units, that is 30.8 to 35.2 kilocalories per kilogram of body mass. Uh, so if we're working in pounds, very easy. Take your weight, multiply it by 14, multiply it by 16. This gives you kind of like an upper and lower boundary of the range that you might be looking at. And you can kind of use your intuition from there and say, okay, I think I'm going to start out with my estimate being either on the lower end or the higher end, whatever the case may be. So it's a very crude estimate, but it's a very quick estimate. Now, I mentioned you, you could do this assume approach or you could do the estimate approach. And I, the estimate approach involves using kind of standard uh, population level equations. These are equations that we alluded to a little bit earlier. So what you do is you start out by estimating resting energy expenditure, and then you use a multiplier, a, a correction factor to account for physical activity level. So for the, meta, for the resting component, there are quite a few validated equations. There's uh, the revised Harris-Benedict equation. There's the Mifflin-St. Georg equation. There's the Cunningham equation I mentioned earlier. There's also the Catch-McArdle equation. Those are kind of the four that have captured my interest the most uh, in, in past years. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, I think the revised Harris-Benedict equation does pretty well for non-lifters. For lifters, I certainly prefer the Cunningham equation because there can be, uh, you know, their baseline characteristics might not very accurately reflect their fat-free mass. And, and I think the revised Harris-Benedict equation, a lot of those terms are really just kind of... Uh, they're just, they kind of co-vary with fat-free mass. So you're kind of getting at somebody's fat-free mass by looking at their sex, their weight, their height, their age. So I think the Cunningham equation could be used across the board, but uh, certainly for lifters who, who tend to have a little bit more fat-free mass than, than the general population, uh, I, I usually go with the Cunningham equation for them. So you use one of those validated equations to get your resting expenditure, and then you multiply by a correction factor. Uh, now, the standard correction factors that just about everybody uses, it, it goes from sedentary to extremely active. There are five categories, right? So uh, the sedentary category is inactive job plus very rare or minimal exercise. Uh, and the extremely active is hard daily exercise and other regular physically demanding tasks. But what if, what if I have a sedentary job, but I also do hard daily physical exercise? Well, that seems to describe a absolute shit ton of people, doesn't it? Interesting. Yeah. So, so how, how do the traditional correction factors account for that? They just make you frustrated and confused. Is is there a better is there a better way? There is a better way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's honestly when we were developing macro factor. One of the things that drove us nuts is that like, it's not like you have to find some edge case to make this uh, a nebulous concept. It's like most people look at these five categories in the description for each and they're like, dude, none of these apply to me because <laughs> like my activity outside of the gym is fully uncoupled from my activity inside the gym. So like there are a lot of people who are generally active and do not do structured exercise, but like I don't know, maybe 60% of our audience probably works a sedentary job, doesn't do a ton of physical activity, 
but trains really hard in the gym several times per week. And so none of these typical kind of classic categories really apply to those very common scenarios. Like, like I said, it's not like it's, it's truly a baffling oversight. It, it is because like in developing the app, we tried to think of so many edge cases that would cause this to not work well or that to be uh, kind of contradictory. Right. But like with this, it was like, well, these just don't work. They just don't do what they're intended to do very well. Yes, someone fitting neatly into one of these categories is an edge case. <laughs> yeah, so so anyway, we were so annoyed by that that we're like, screw it, we're making our own for the purpose of the app. So uh, what we do is we separate out your general physical activity and your structured exercise activity. So uh, we basically add the two of them together to get the correction factor. So starting out with general activity level, that's kind of the base of your your correction factor. So we say if, if you're pretty inactive, pretty sedentary, that's a 1.2. If you're moderately active, that's a 1.4. But if you're, if you're really active outside of the gym, you know, really high level of non-exercise physical activity, that would be a 1.6. And then on top of that, we're going to add an additional correction for how much you train. So zero training sessions per week, you add zero. Uh, one to three sessions per week, you add 0 0.1. Four to six training sessions per week, you add 0 0.2. And if you train seven or more sessions per week, you would add 0 0.3. And so that keeps us within the general range that the classical correction factors would cover, uh, but it doesn't drive you insane <laughs> when you're trying to figure out what category you fit in because you train really hard five times a week, but you like literally don't move all day, which is uh, pretty much me right now. Uh, all right, so we, th you know, I think it's pretty clear that the very basic, you know, just multiplying calories by body weight is a very crude way to uh, to kind of assume a given value for total daily energy expenditure. I think the estimation approach using the combination of validated equations plus the correction factor is certainly a, a, a step in the right direction and is an upgrade. Uh, but of course, the other possibility you could assume, you could estimate, you could also observe. And observing is where you take things a step further. This is a much higher investment in terms of time and energy and effort and attention uh, but it will get you even closer to a much better estimate of your total daily energy expenditure because those uh, validated equations do a pretty good job for a pretty good portion of people out there, uh, but they cannot really account for that variation from person to person that was really highlighted in that Ponser paper. Uh, so obviously with the observe approach, you're going to have to accurately monitor your daily weight measurements. And the more accurate you can get them, the better. So a good strategy is getting those weights in the morning, wearing a standardized amount of clothing, you wake up, use the restroom, no food or drink, get your morning weight, and then move on for, for the day. Uh, that, that's the kind of most standardized way to do it if possible. You also want to accurately monitor your daily caloric intake. Uh, that, that's going to be an important part of the process here. Now, Monitoring daily calorie intake isn't for everybody. There, there are a lot of people who, when they start to monitor daily calorie intake, they get a little bit too uh, fixated on that. It can cause some psychological distress. It can feed into some disordered eating behaviors. And if that's you, 
then daily tracking of calories probably isn't the right strategy for you. And that's totally okay. There are other ways to uh, take control of your diet uh, and, and kind of manipulate it in a way that is conducive to whatever goal you happen to have at that time. But uh, if monitoring monitoring daily calorie intake is something that works for you, it's a really nice way uh, to, to get a, a really solid estimate of your total daily energy expenditure. The only shortcoming here, uh, this approach of observing can be obviously thrown off if you have inaccurate or inconsistent data when it comes to your daily weight or your daily caloric intake. Another potential shortcoming is some people really get thrown off by erroneously interpreting their day-to-day fluctuations in water weight. So if you see the scale jump around two pounds, uh, you know you have to really carefully consider how much of that is likely to be actual tissue, whether it's fat mass or fat-free mass, and how much of it is probably just a shift in water weight. Uh, so there are some challenges with this particular approach if you're just kind of doing it with pencil and paper. Uh, when it comes to putting together macro factor, what we try to do is observe, uh, or, or we, we try to combine the two different approaches of estimate and observe. So we do use estimation equations based on baseline data to try to get a good starting point uh, based on your baseline characteristics. But then through daily monitoring of body weight and your dietary intakes, we, we triangulate all that information. Uh, we, we make estimates based on the metabolizable energy of different tissues that could be gained or lost in the process. When you triangulate all that data and combine it, you can get yourself to a very accurate estimate of total daily energy expenditure in a pretty short amount of time. And one of the ways we tried to get around over-interpreting some of that day-to-day water weight fluctuation was by uh, implementing some smoothing features that we think handle that kind of variability really well. Uh, So a lot of people, as we're talking more about the app, are wondering, you know, generally how it works. That's kind of the way that we approached it. And through our piloting and, and through our, you know, alpha and beta testing seems to be working pretty well. But even if you don't want to buy the app, which is totally fine, you know, this is kind of the entire roadmap of if you're somebody who wants to estimate your total daily energy expenditure, this kind of takes you from the simplest way to do it to the most complex and the most labor intensive. Uh, and so where you fall on that spectrum totally is up to your preference and, and how you wish to approach it. But I think the value of knowing that number should be pretty self-explanatory. Uh, when we're trying to make changes in body composition, it's all about implementing a large portion of it is about implementing a caloric deficit, a caloric surplus, or staying at maintenance, if that's your goal. The best way to facilitate a good diet plan for a given body composition goal is by knowing total daily energy expenditure, so then you can kind of plan your caloric intake from there. So uh, yeah, we, we, we looked through the Ponser paper uh, with some of that really cool new data that was, you know, like I said, I was really stoked about that project and the paper that came from it. And now that gives a more practical look uh, to help people out when it comes to figuring out either your total daily energy expenditure, or if you're working with new clients, how to work toward getting an estimate pretty quickly for them. Now, moving on, uh, like I said, we're going to save a lot of the Q&A questions for the live Q&A extravaganza, the event everybody's talking about on, what was it, September 2nd, I think? Yeah, I Seems think that's about it. right. Uh, but we did want to answer one question this week because 
I swear this question because it's a question we get every week. It seems like every week. I mean, honestly, seventy five percent of the time that you say, "Hey, anybody have any questions?" We get a question about this, and so we figured we should probably address it. And to me, it seems like a confusing question because it it feels very out of left field. Like we we get a lot of questions like, "Ah, hey, my squat technique is janky. What can I do to fix it?" Or like. Hey, you know, I I'm turning 50 next year. Like, what are some tips for aging lifters? It's like, oh, okay. Like, those are those are common questions that a lot of people are are going to have. That's like squarely within the realm of things that people seem to think about a lot. But this one, uh, we we get all the time, and I have always found it very confusing. Yeah, and so the question is basically a single word: uh, turkesterone. Like, it's it. There's just this pervasive question that comes up every couple of weeks. It's just like, what do you think of terkesterone? Uh, Does terkesterone work? Um, and it comes out of left field because it is not one of the classics. Uh, it, it is not like a staple in the supplement world. You know, there's some staples in the supplement world that have low efficacy, but you see them coming, right? I mean, th- there's the, the kind of classic group of supplements that don't really do much, but you hear about them all the time. But turkesterone is a, a new supplement on the block, or at least it's new to us. Uh, so first, I want to take a step back. So turkesterone is a phytoectesteroid. And phytoectesteroids are a very cool aspect of plant and insect biology. So I was reading through a paper that was talking about, like, out in nature, what, what are these compounds up to? And so... Uh, a really interesting facet of phytoectesteroids is that plants can synthesize these compounds uh, basically as a defense mechanism against the insects that would eat them. And so uh, the insects would eat a plant that has made a, a particular phytoectesteroid. And these compounds, when, they, when the insects ingest them, they induce molting. Uh, and ultimately it kills the insect, uh, which which is like, a very heavy metal way to defend yourself as a plant. Like the the insect basically uh, eats this. And I apologize for any biologists because I'm going to oversimplify molting, but it's basically like the the insect eats it and then just kind of disintegrates, (laughs) you know, like, like molting is like a shedding of the exoskeleton. Uh, And yeah, so it's, it's like a really horrific way for, uh, for an insect to go, I imagine. But anyway, that that's what what that's where we get them in nature. The plants make them, the insects eat them. Molting is induced, and it's a bad deal. But people have uh, extracted these from plants, and you you know been interested in their potential use as dietary supplements. Really, going back several decades, uh, there was a lot of rec- a lot of literature coming out of the Soviet Union uh, several decades ago, looking into a variety of different phytoecdysteroids, and. Uh, I th- my prediction, my bold prediction, back in the day, everybody was talking about beta-ectesterone, and that kind of died down a little bit, and right now, a lot of people are talking about turkesterone. Uh, apparently, there's over 400 phytoectesteroids that have been identified, <laughs> so like, if we keep doing the like musical chairs with these, we will never run out, so I'm kind of in this for the long haul here. Um, but anyway, the natural question would be, what are these supposed to do? And for, for a while, a lot of people were like, well, ecdysteroid, uh, 
sounds like steroid, maybe they're anabolic, you know, uh, people have looked at whether or not they have any anabolic or androgenic properties. When it comes to terkesterone, the most common mechanism thrown about is that they are agonists of the estrogen beta receptor, uh, and that that would be the mechanism by which they uh, promote uh, anabolism or hypertrophy of muscle. Um, now, where this gets interesting is kind of looking through the volumes of human data to see if they support that. Um, so speaking on ectosteroids in general, phytoectosteroids in general, uh, the ISSN had a position statement in 2018 that was just like looking at all supplements. And they were they presented a very skeptical take of phytoectosteroids as performance-enhancing supplements. Uh, a 2018 supplement paper by the IOC, kind of like a, a big group paper by a bunch of uh, sport nutrition experts, didn't even mention phytoectosteroids in the paper. They kind of covered the things that seem like they work, the things that probably you ought to skip out on. They didn't even mention uh, phytoectosteroids there. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I can't lean on you know these previous reviews because uh, they're barely even talking about phytoectosteroids, let alone terkesterone a specific one and like dude i can't find any like relevant human literature looking at terkesterone no i do same here so i i was working on the podcast outline last night uh and, and i think we both had the same thought we got another question about terkesterone and so i think we were both like okay well We've got to talk about this sooner or later. So I was on PubMed at like 2 a.m. and I was just scrolling through results, looking for human trials. I was like, there are so many people talking about this. So I, I expected this to go the way that a lot of supplement hype goes. So like, for example, a few years ago, uh, deaspartic acid got really uh, popular and like really hyped there for a second because there was some some mechanistic stuff suggesting that it maybe regulated the uh, the activity of the protein or of the enzyme that's like the rate limiting enzyme in testosterone synthesis and the Leydig cells. Uh, and then a human trial gets published showing that like, oh, man, this boosts testosterone by 40 percent. This is good shit. You know, study didn't look at strength or hypertrophy outcomes, but people see a 40% boost in testosterone in humans and say like, okay, like we're going all in on deaspartic acid now. But it, it takes that it takes that first human trial. And you know, I, I should note that other deaspartic acid studies have, have failed to replicate that finding, and it, uh, it doesn't really seem to do much for hypertrophy uh, or testosterone. But anyway, like generally that's the way it goes. Like there's some cell culture stuff, maybe there's some rodent stuff. And then uh, you have the first human trial with some promising results. And then, then the hype train leaves the station. With, with terkesterone, maybe there's a human trial somewhere. I couldn't fucking find it. And then after looking on PubMed, I just Googled terkesterone uh, to find, like, you know, people who sell it, shilling it, to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to look at their bibliographies because, like, Maybe they're citing a human trial in like some obscure journal that's not indexed by PubMed. And I couldn't find any human trials in like any of the sales materials for it either. So I I, I can't claim with 100% certainty that none exist, but if they do, I couldn't find them and no one's talking about them. So that 
it, and if they do exist, by the way, please do send them over because, like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love be, to see them if they're out there. Yeah, so if you have your hands on some good human trials, uh, ideally with relevant outcomes, uh, please do send them our way. We would be very enthusiastic to see them. But, uh, but yeah, so. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but... Uh, Th- that's about all I had to say. Yeah, so we're both in the same boat. We try to find some evidence for this. Because, like, that that's... To me, that is, like, when, when people come to me with a supplement question, my first thought isn't, like, huh, let me get out the whiteboard, put together some mechanisms, and kind of determine if it should work. Like, my first thought is, like, well, let's see what's going on in the actual trials that, that are most relevant. And uh, when it comes to turkesterone, you know, hey, maybe it does do all sorts of cool things, but but we just don't have the human trials necessary to say with any degree of confidence, like, oh, safe bet, this is a really effective ergogenic aid. And you know, for me, I think uh, when I when I write about supplements, when I talk to consumers of supplements, and when I talk to producers of supplements, because I, I do advise some some people that make supplements. Uh, I, I basically say like, listen, there, there is a certain burden that goes with you telling me that you have a supplement I should buy from you. You know, th- th- there is a burden to show me, first of all, that the ingredient is reliably dosed. And I have seen with a lot of other phytoecdesteroids that they are notoriously bad with regards to how often, or I guess I should say infrequently, the label claim matches the amount of ingredient that's actually in the product. So that is a thing we know. I think during season one or two of the podcast, we talked about a study about beta-ectysterone, if memory serves. Yeah. And if you just looked at the results of the study, it seemed like, oh yeah, like this, this works pretty well. But then they also did like chemical analysis of the actual supplement they were giving people. And I, I don't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but I, I want to say they found out it was underdosed by like 90%. They thought they were giving people like 40 milligrams a day and they were giving them like four. Right. And yeah. they were just like, well, I mean, either, either this shit's like super powerful <laughs> yeah. and causes uh you know ergogenic responses with incredibly low dosages or you know we just got some false positives and small sample research yeah so i i have seen some papers explicitly like, like the entire purpose of the paper was to say like hey just so you know these different phytoecdesteroids uh the, the labels just aren't matching the independent anal- analysis for a lot of the stuff we're buying off the shelves uh so like I said, the burden on somebody selling a supplement or trying to make a compelling argument in favor for it, you got to show me that it's reliably dosed. You got to show me that it's safe, that it's bioavailable, and that it gets to the target tissue in vivo in human beings. You got to show me that it induces clinically relevant or practically relevant effects. And you got to show me that all this stuff is occurring in a fairly generalizable population. And I'm, I'm okay with making some stretches, you know? So like a, a good example of that is a lot of the research on like sleep supp- supplements is conducted in people diagnosed with insomnia, 
or something. So you're like, well, I don't have insomnia, but I'm looking for a little sleep aid. I'm generally comfortable with saying, okay, well, we can use some of this insomnia literature and see if we can kind of generalize it out to someone who's just having maybe not diagnosed insomnia, but some trouble sleeping at night. You know, like there there is some degree of general generalizability that you often have to be comfortable with because like, you know, we always say, for example, oh, when we're talking about bodybuilding stuff, it'd be great to do this study in bodybuilders. Well, it's not going to happen. There's just not not that many studies that sample bodybuilders. So as a bodybuilder with most of your supplement literature, you have to say, oh, well, these folks have been lifted for a couple of years. That works for me, you know? So I'm totally comfortable with, you know, embracing some amount of generalizing from one population to a closely related population. But it's got to be, from my perspective, more than in vitro stuff in a petri dish it's got to be more than a mouse model i'm not ready to see a really prominent because for a lot of these phytoecti steroids i believe including turkesterone they have the in vitro stuff that looks good they've got a little bit of the rodent stuff that looks good but we're still several steps away from where i would say yeah this is you know clearly evidence of a really solid ergogenic uh, aid that, that that you can rely on so the important thing to keep in mind here is that the absence of this evidence does not indicate that this is an unsafe or an ineffective ingredient. There's just simply no human evidence that we can look at to say, oh, yeah, I, I totally can predict what this does, you know? So uh, it's it's certainly popular, and that's probably the only... The only actual inference I can make after scanning the internet is that it seems popular. Yeah, I mean, I I would also say if like your standard of, hey, is this supplement worth trying? If your standard is like, there's two cool cell culture studies and someone's talked about it on a YouTube channel. Boy, I hope you have a a thick wallet uh, (laughs) because there are going to be a lot of things that fall under that umbrella and probably 95% of them aren't going to pan out. Yeah, dude. So in the process of searching for this on the internet, I did find some like Reddit threads of people who are like, hey guys, I'm going to take turkesterone and kind of document the experience, follow along if you want. And the, the first one, that I, th- I think I only looked at one, but yeah, the, the, the poster did a really nice job kind of setting the scene here's where I'm at. Here's my training experience. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Here's what my training is going to be like. Here's my diet. Also, just for context, here's the other supplements I'm taking. Dude, I had never heard of like 40% of them. (laughs) And like most of what I do is write about supplements these days, like or a decent portion. And uh, I'd never heard of some of this stuff. The list was like a mile long. And I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like you could tell that that's a person who's eager when they get a little bit of evidence, say, oh, I'm definitely throwing that in the mix. Because like, yeah, if, if you regularly take like 14 supplements a day, I, I think that generally indicates that you have a fairly optimistic view when a new supplement comes down the line. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, I, I have no evidence with which to stifle anyone's excitement, enthusiasm, or optimism about turkesterone. But I also have no evidence whatsoever to say that that it's going to be an effective ingredient. All right. Speaking of supplements, uh, I'll tell you what you ought to do. Head down, uh, head down to bulksupplements.com. Uh, we've got the code SBSPOD. That's in all caps. If you use that code at checkout, 
uh, over at BulkSupplements.com, you get 5% off your entire order. So if you want to, you know, get that list of 14, 15, 16 supplements to take daily, that's where you'd go about doing it. Uh, finally, to play us out, uh, Greg, it's, you know, we, it's been a long summer break. We've been missing all the food content. What do you got? Yeah, so uh, we're we're going we're going back to food content to play us out, uh, and I'm talking about a recipe that I haven't made in over a year, but I'm going to make tomorrow, uh, and that is scotche ragusana. Um, so scotche is it, it's an Italian thing, uh, and I don't think it's like I've never seen it on a menu anywhere in the U.S. But uh, yeah, we we get together with friends every weekend, make some good food, and you know we we were kind of like thrashing around to think like, hey, what's something good that we haven't made in a while? Um, and I, I remembered scotche from a video that uh, Chef John at Food Wishes made about a year ago, um, and I remembered like, holy shit, that stuff is amazing. So I, I've seen it described as lasagna bread. Uh, so real sh- stronger by science heads know that we're we're a very passionate podcast when it comes to lasagna. Um, all forms of lasagna, by the way, all of the real forms of lasagna. Uh, but yeah, basically you make a thin a thin dough out of semolina, um, and then you top it with you know sauce, cheese, various things. And then you fold it over, and then you top it again, and then you fold it over again, and then you top it again, and then you fold it over again. And basically, it comes out, like, just imagine that there was a lasagna hot pocket where each, where, where there were, like, clear, distinct layers of dough. Like, the the semolina dough ends up, ends up with a texture very, very reminiscent of, like, a nice al dente pasta. Um but yeah, it's it's like a self-contained vessel and it's so good and I'm I'm going to make some this weekend and I'm very excited about it. Um so if you want a a nice little food project just to mess around with, it's not that hard to make. Uh if you're someone who's just getting into making dough, if if like making bread is something that appeals to you but like you're a little bit intimidated by making dough, this is a very very simple dough to make. Uh, it's really easy to work with. It's not super wet. It's not super sticky. So you can you can get some practice, build up your confidence. Um, but man, it's so good. I'm going to make a, a red sauce and cheese one. I'm going to make a ricotta and fried eggplant one. Uh, I'm making my own ricotta tonight. Looking forward to that. Um, and then apparently a, a very popular like traditional scotch topping, I guess, filling um, is like broccoli, cauliflower, and cheese. I have not made that iteration before, but I'm going to give that a shot as well. Um, but man, scotche is so good. Um, I'll, I'll link the, the chef John video, um, in the show notes, but you, you should check it out. It's a truly exceptional food. And I am excited to dive back into that world. And I don't want to do this to you, but, uh, we had the lasagna showdown that, I think I think a lot of people are saying it went pretty favorably for me. I am thinking about upstaging you this weekend. When, oh God. when you <laughs> when you make these, I 
actually, this is kind of a throwback. This is one of the first foods I started cooking when I got into cooking. Um, I'm going to bring a Hot Pocket. And I'm not going to tell you what flavor, but the way... I, I don't heat it up the way people normally do. <laughs> I have kind of my own way to do it. And the the dough gets this nice kind of flaky... It's this golden brown flaky texture. Uh, the outside is extremely hot. If you bite it, you will burn your mouth. But the inside still has just that little bit of a frozen core. Because if you've ever cooked a Hot Pocket, you know that there is no way to cook it through. And you really shouldn't be cooking it through, in my opinion. If you want the best flavor, you want that burning outside in that frozen core to give you that contrast. Yeah, I mean, g- good food is all about contrast. You got the the texture contrast, but yeah, the temperature contrast is <laughs> is really that next level contrast that that I think Hot Pockets have really perfected. <laughs> I've never had a Hot Pocket that was cooked in a way that was both safe and edible. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, that does it for this episode. Uh, like I said, we're going to do the uh, the great experiment, uh, trying to do a live Q&A September 2nd. So hopefully you'll be able to join us for it. We're going to try to choose a time. Um, you know, we, We've got a lot of international listeners across a variety of time zones. So we're going to try to choose a time zone that that makes sense and uh, we'll do our best with it. And we hope that you will join us. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.